And I think the main the main goal of decarbonization is is to remove carbon from uh, from the uh, as many different uh, uh, generating sources as you possibly can, whether that's from cars or from or from the power sector, um, and with the idea of of not not contributing more and and in fact hoping to reverse uh, the effects of climate change uh, to try to to try to keep the the planet from heating up to a level. Uh, that that's going to endanger everyone on the planet. That was the voice of Doug Scott, Vice President of Electricity and Efficiency at the Great Plains Institute. I'm Dan Brissett, the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast, The Climate Conversation. And now let me introduce my co-host, Sydney O'Shaughnessy. Hi, Dan. And today we're going to be talking all about decarbonization. And we're going to be talking about it with Doug Scott, who you, who you just heard from, and Mallory Huggins, the Senior Project Director and Director of the Keystone Energy Board for the Keystone Policy Center. Doug and Mallory worked together for nine or 10 months to put together the Decarbonization Dialogue, a report that focuses on all of the different ways we can decarbonize different sectors. And today they're joining us so that we can talk about the findings of their report. The decarbonization dialogue was designed to provide a bipartisan, collaborative set of recommendations that could quickly inform debate around climate and do so uh, in the context of environmental equity as well. Great. Well, Mallory and Doug, thank you so much for joining us. I think we should jump right into the report now and the work that you have been doing on decarbonization. What was the inspiration for developing these recommendations? And how did GPI and Keystone come to collaborate on this project together? Yeah, I can let Doug maybe start since he's we've we've uh, labeled him the brainchild of, um, of the project. But Doug has for a long time been the co-chair of the Keystone Energy Board. Um, and at least since I've been at Keystone, we haven't, you know, tackled a, a real project as the Energy Board um, in this way. So it was a it was a cool opportunity for Keystone and Great Plains to work together because our organizations have um, really similar ethoses that are focused on, you know, bringing stakeholders with diverse perspectives together around tough policy issues and, and finding unexpected common ground amid those diverse perspectives and developing durable solutions amid all of that. But yeah, Doug, do you want to talk more about your inspiration? Sure. So the Energy Board brings people that, that, that are in various different disciplines, you know, everybody from, from power producers to uh, environmental organizations to people that are in oil and gas to, to lots of different uh, uh, folks who, who touch energy uh, and the environment in some manner and talks with them about the issues of the day and trying to figure out, as Mallory said, try to figure out some solutions to, to um, uh, really difficult issues. Um, when we talked about uh, things like decarbonization, uh, we, we have a lot of discussions with people uh, on Capitol Hill. And one of the things that we kept hearing was, well, here's all this list of issues that we actually can't talk about because they're, they're kind of like the subjects that nobody can, can um, can talk about on Capitol Hill. And that, that, that got us to thinking, well, maybe there's a way for a group like uh, the Keystone Policy Center um, that works with a group like Great Plains Institute, where that's what we do is bring people who disagree on issues or have different points of view 
Why, why can't we bring them together and see if some of those issues that were the, the no touch issues uh, are things where we can actually find some agreement and in that way, uh, maybe help the debate on Capitol Hill, maybe help inject uh, some ways to look at some of these issues that, that were seen as ones that, that couldn't be touched. Um, it's a big job to pull all of these stakeholders together. Um, and when you read the report, there are pages and pages of names and affiliations of the people who participated. Um, can you help us understand what the scale of this effort was, how long it took, how many people were involved, how many dialogues there were, how many discussions, and sort of how all of this came together, um, maybe from like a behind the scenes perspective? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, you know, the dialogue took place over about nine months. Um, we started last summer, um, you know, long before we knew what the political climate would look like this year. Um, and and finished up earlier earlier this year. And you know the goal all along was to find these bipartisan but still impactful um, recommendations. And we knew that it was a big undertaking because we wanted to be as economy wide in our focus as possible. Um, so we wanted to cover a lot of ground, but also cover it quickly. And so um, one big part of that was trying to to start with existing work and recommendations, and and not start from scratch or not try to duplicate work. So we did a policy analysis to start to just kind of see what else is out there and see where there's already emerging consensus on certain issues. Um, and then it was also really important to, to your question a little bit, Dan, but to get the right people around the table. And so that was about, you know, starting with existing relationships that Great Plains and that Keystone had with folks in the sectors that we wanted to focus on. Um, and, and some of that even came from working with them on, on related projects in the past. And altogether, we had about 50 stakeholders who were involved either at the steering committee level or on one of the working groups. And then we also had some experts who came in uh, now and again to offer their, their um, expert advice, even though they weren't involved on a day-to-day -day basis. And we tried to really get people from a different, different range of organizations um, or different types of organizations. We had you know nonprofits and NGOs, analysts, lawyers, think tanks, associations, corporate folks um, from across the, the political spectrum. And we tried to organize it um, in a way where we had this, this larger body, the steering committee body, and then these working groups and kept them in constant communication with each other so that we had steering committee having this, um, this eye on where there are cross-sectoral opportunities and where there are commonalities across the three sectors, um, but then the working groups that really got into the weeds um, on some of the, the issues we were talking about. And we also tried to like narrow our focus as quickly as possible um, by setting up some early conversations that, that set up kind of the Venn diagram of like where there are things where there's already, you know, some consensus or the potential for consensus, um, but also some agreement that it, it's, a, it's a policy area or a recommendation that could, could make a big impact. So we brought in experts early on to narrow that in the power, transportation and ag sectors. Um, and we also time bound some of our conversations. So we might say, hey, we have an hour to just talk about tax credits and, and incentives. And obviously we're not gonna solve everything in an hour, but let's see what we can come to agreement on as a working group in that time. And then Doug and I would go in the background and, and you know, write some recommendations in response to what we heard. Um, so really about getting the right folks around the table um, and also creating that um, process that was efficient, but also kept connections among all of the different groups. The only thing I would add to that is one of the things I think is different about this dialogue than, than some of the others is 
uh, adding agriculture um, to the mix. Uh, we, we hear all the time about the power sector and, and transportation because those are where a substantial amount of emissions uh, come from. Um, agriculture is kind of a under the radar, underappreciated, undervalued portion of this. And so we thought we could actually add a lot to the dialogue. And also, you know, in terms of the bipartisan uh, nature of it, you know, bring in a whole different set of players that aren't normally around the table in these discussions. And so uh, we thought, and, and Keystone had actually had some, some done some uh, work on, on the agriculture sector. Um, and I think that that, uh, that you know, helped add uh, a little bit to the, to the process. One of the great things about, a, 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 you know, starting with, with folks at Keystone or Great Plains is that we're already talking to lots of different people who have lots of different points of view throughout the country. And so assembling the group was more a matter of, you know, what's the right mix of people to have, you know, um, you know, what, what's, you know, we want to make sure we're not leaving out sectors. We want to make sure we're not leaving out points of view. Um, and so um, luckily when, when we called on folks, um, we, they were very good about wanting to, to, to join in and, and uh, be part of this discussion. Well, I think we at ESI strongly agree with your decision to pull in agriculture. Um, it's something that we've, spent a fair amount of time talking about in our congressional climate camp briefing series, talking about um, agriculture in the, in the context of, you know, it's an emitting sector, um, but also it's the potential source of mitigation and adaptation climate solutions. Um, Mallory, one thing that you said, I just wanted to comment on very quickly. You were talking about bringing the right people to the table. Well, two of those people actually we have pretty close connections with. Um, Dan Delury is a member of our advisory board and uh, the great Shelley Fiddler is on our board of directors uh, and has been for some time. Uh, so um, even though uh, Sid and I weren't there, uh, I'm sure you heard uh, lots, of, um, lots of the things we hear. They are sources of great ideas and also really do a great job helping us make connections and see things and understand how things fit together. Yeah, they were both. Great to, great to have in the mix. And Shelly's also on our energy board and board of trustees and a longtime uh, friend and supporter of Keystone. Um, so we already kind of touched on the different sectors you chose to focus on in the report, which were agriculture, power, transportation. Um, but can you give me exa an example of the cross-sectoral recommendations in the report? Sure. I mean, the 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 cross-sectoral piece wasn't built in as its own working group, but that was something that we let those recommendations kind of bubble up organically throughout the conversation where it might be something that came up across every single working group, or it might be something that, you know, continually came up in, um, in the steering committee conversation. So uh, one example of a, of a cross-sector recommendation is just around um, expanding access to, to broadband, especially in rural areas. Um, recognizing that still somewhere in the ballpark of a third of Americans, especially in rural and tribal communities don't have access to broadband. Um, so it's in, you know, inherently an equity issue, um, but also, especially as we um, you know, add new technologies to our power transportation and agriculture systems to, to monitor you know, various things and to make them more efficient and effective, we really do need to have that broadband access across the whole country. So I think it's a good example of a, a recommendation that's really foundational to um, decarbonization, but also has so many other co-benefits when it comes to, you know, just internet access being so important for, for health and education and a variety of other things. 
And I'll lift up a couple more examples. The, the interesting thing about this is when you start talking about recommendations like this, there are so many that are that are crossing, you know, different different sectors. So um, it, it, that's why that you know they're they're you know you don't really have the cross sector on its own because there are so many different pieces. But a couple of examples of that would be, you know, if you take something like um, uh, electric. Uh, electric vehicles or transportation electrification. Um, well, obviously it has a huge impact on the, on the transportation sector and, and emissions, um, but it also has a huge impact. It could have a huge impact on agriculture from, from low carbon fuels. It could have a huge and does have a huge impact uh, on the power sector in terms of uh, you know, more electric power load that's necessary and the, and the infrastructure that needs to be built out for that. What are the rate plans for that? So that's just an example of, of, of a policy that, that ends up transcending lots of these sectors. And another major one is, is research and development and trying to drive new technology and innovation. That, that crosses all, this, all the sectors and, and is, is something that, and again, in terms of things that are bipartisan, that's something that that I think you'll see that even with a lot of gridlock and even with, you know, a lot of uh, people, you know, separating into their own camps on on some of these issues, they, folks pretty much get get together behind R and D and and bringing new technologies to market and and trying to look at what might be those solutions, you know, ten or fifteen years down the road and how do we start developing those now, not just for our own decarbonization, but because that becomes um, a, a great international. Uh, kind of piece as well. We help. We have, maybe we help develop technology that the rest of the world needs in in the in the decarbonization uh, worldwide. Yeah, I definitely appreciated the cross sectoral recommendations in the report because it really helped contextualize decarbonization and show how expansive the issue is. You really can't look at it in you know a silo. You have to look at it across all of these different avenues. Yeah, and I I think. It's tough, and we talked about this some that you know on on the hill we have committees that are focused on specific issue areas, and agencies are set up to focus on specific issue areas. Um, but certainly, the decarbonization dialogue recognized how much those things need to, how much all of those different siloed issue issue areas need to be in communication. And in fact, there is a recommendation around that. And so, it's also been nice to see that the Biden administration has recognized that and is really trying to infuse climate as a as an important topic both within and, and across um, all of the, the agencies. The other part of that is that that as you as you start looking at how people approach climate policy, a lot of times you'll you'll see um, particular groups are siloed around one technology or one thing that we need to do to do this. And the reality is it's everything. I mean if you start to think about the magnitude of the issue here and what we have to do not just in this country but worldwide to actually have the kind of impact on, on temperature that we need to, um, we need everything. And, and so, you know, it, it's not something where we say, well, if we just do this one technology, everything will be okay, because it, it really won't be. We're there, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna need to, to, you know, whether it's things like carbon capture or whether it's, you know, some advanced technologies for power generation, um, you know, it, th those are all things that we need to try to explore to figure out what's what's the best way to, to try to get to the the, uh, the marks that we want to achieve. Yeah, definitely. And the thing that keeps coming into my mind um, that I've heard a ton is there's no silver bullet solution for climate change. Exactly. And I think your report really illustrates that. Yeah, I have to, to quote 
uh, probably the most oft used phrase in the decarbonization dialogue um, from our friend Mitch Jackson with FedEx, but just that the idea that you don't have to be against everything that you aren't explicitly for. Um, and that's what we tried to focus on here is like, there might be priorities for the organizations involved that are different from priorities that other groups have, but we really need to throw a lot of different things at this problem um, and recognize that there might be slightly different, you know, ideal ways of getting there depending on whose perspective you're talking about. Um, but we should really be advancing as much as we can. And that's, that's one of the nice things about the way that this unfolded too, um, kind of riffing off of Mitch's, Mitch's line there is that, you know, this isn't something where everybody jumps up and says, I love all of these recommendations with all my heart, but it's, it's okay, I understand what all these recommendations are doing. And as a group, I, I really support this. And I think that's a great way, given what we were just talking about, that we really need to, to work on a whole lot of things at once. We don't have time to do one thing at a time. We've got to work on a whole bunch of things uh, at, one, at one time, uh, trying to, to kind of wrap our heads around, well, we can support a whole, a whole suite of solutions um, uh, you know, without trying to focus on any one thing. I, I think that becomes really important, not just in a dialogue like this, but it becomes really important for policy as, as, as Congress and, and the White House uh, you know, uh, try to move forward. So putting, our, so putting ourselves in the shoes of policymakers, they are delivered this wonderful report, lots of recommendations, a who's who of people informed it um, under the banner of Keystone and Great Plains. So it has all of the pedigree. How should policymakers use this? How, how would you advise them to, how should they use this document to inform their decisions um, going forward? Should it be a starting point? Should it be, um, you know, in your own words, I'm just curious about what your advice to them would be. I would say as a starting point, I, I would say this is, this is the, you know, we got all these folks together. They, they, they coalesced around this set of recommendations, recognizing there are deeper dives that are going to need to be done on some of these, these issues that, that we're prepared to help. Uh, lead if if Congress thinks that there's there's more information that needs to come from one point, um, uh, you know I think I think both Great Plains and, and Keystone are willing to do that. Um, but yeah, as a starting point to say and and you know having having been a legislator at one time, not on the federal level but on the state level, the first question legislators ask is, okay, you're bringing this to me. Who's for it and who's against it? And if you can show a really diverse group of people that are behind something that are all for something that gets people's attention as it should, because, because that's a way to try to drive policy that's sustainable. So we don't end up in this, you know, every few years we're, we're whiplash between really divergent type of policies. I think that this is a starting point for, for doing something that's, that's highly sustainable. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what Doug said, um, that, you know, we're not naive to think that if we do everything in this report, we're going to meet our new 52%, you know, goal 50 to 52% goal, um, by 2030, but it is a place to put a stake in the ground and say, all right, we have agreement on this pretty large set of things. Let's get moving on those while we continue to debate, to debate the more, um, the, the stuff that needs more deep dives and, and that might be um, more sticky. Um, and I think in addition to the, the context of the recommendations themselves or the recommendations themselves rather being valuable for policymakers as a starting point, I do think the 
kind of ethos of the project is valuable and also worth them taking to heart. You know, just the idea that having these conversations across sectors was really helpful. And I think Doug already said it, but I'll emphasize it again, that just having ag as part of those conversations was so great for the folks on the power and transportation side. And then the ag folks really loved hearing about what's going on in the power and transportation world. So just that cross-sectoral lens um, is, is really valuable. I think the other part of it too, from a policymaker's standpoint is we, we, we tend to think of people in, in these binary type choices. Well, they're, they're ours or they're D's or they're urban or they're rural. And, and I, I, think, I think that misses a whole lot of the, of the reality of, of, of the situation. Um, you know, there, um, and, and, you know, there are people who are taking, who would consider themselves very conservative or red state who are taking measures right now that fit directly in to what blue state folks and, and, and people that are, you know, that are really trying to decarbonize are, are doing. They may not be doing it for the same reasons. You know, if, if, a, if a red state is doubling down on wind, they may be doing it either A, because it's cheaper for their customers, or they may be doing it because it's a great tool to try to attract large customers who want 100% clean energy. It's an economic development tool for them. Well, to me, it really doesn't matter if they're doing it for a, a different reason. And so the idea is to bring some, some policies forward to people that they can consider that they may like for a variety of different reasons. The people on that were part of the dialogue may, you know, will come and, and together and coalesce behind these recommendations, but they may view any particular recommendation. They may say it's okay or it's good for, from, from completely different from completely different viewpoints or reasons. And that's okay. That's good. We, 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 I think we've got to get past this kind of, well, you not only have to like what I like, but you've got to like it for the reasons that I like. And, and I think a dialogue like this helps to, helps to break some of that down. Uh, congratulations on, on a great report. Um, congratulations on hurting all of those cats and uh, getting them to agree on, uh, on all of these recommendations, or at least agree to put their names on the on a report that includes all the recommendations. It's a really, really helpful step in the right direction. Um, you know, and a lot of time when we're talking about climate policy, it's a lot of us versus them. And when I think about this report, this is a we report. This is a report where everyone seems to be on the same side. And that's a really great thing. So congratulations on it. And thank you so much for joining our podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much. We really enjoyed talking to you both. Thanks. We enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having us. As always, if you want to learn more about ESI's work, head to our website at ESI.org. Also, follow us on social media at ESI online for all of our recent updates. And remember, if you like this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.